All right, welcome to episode 11 of The Social Brain. I'm Andrew Cooper Sansone, and today we're going to be talking about the neuroscience of motor learning. So we're going to be talking about motor control, how the brain controls the body, and how you can use that understanding to master motor skills faster. And uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, Taylor Guthrie, the great Taylor Guthrie, and uh, <laughs> going to take it away. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is one of my favorite topics. And honestly, because I, I have a toddler, and so I've watched him learn how to move. Uh, and I think something that we all kind of take for granted is that movement in general is a learning process, right? Uh, we all know how to walk, we all know how to like grab things and everything like that. Uh, but that had to start somewhere, we had to we had to learn that. And we had to internalize that and make it into kind of an automatic thing. Uh, and that whole process that starts through kind of infancy and toddlerhood uh, sticks with us through life. And especially in like Western culture, we get to a point where we stop caring about movement to a certain extent. There's a lot of other cultures that will continue to do kind of martial arts and Tai Chi and continue to refine how their body moves. Uh, and I think that's tied to a lot of the disease we maybe have in our culture around kind of movement and around osteoporosis and things like that. Uh, and so what we really want to get into today is how we use what we know about motor learning to, to really master skills in life. Uh, there, we'll talk a little bit about how the, the 10,000 hour rule is a bunch of crap, uh, that it's really more about the, the type of practice that you do uh, and how these, these things kind of solidify into these kind of automatic programs uh, as you work on them and as you're deliberate with them. And so uh, the first half of this episode, we're going to kind of talk about the, the neuroscience involved and how kind of action works in general. Uh, but then in the second half, like really stick around because that's where we're really going to dive into uh, the, the theories that are uh, applicable for coaching and that are applicable for sports that are applicable for mastering pretty much any kind of motor skill. Uh, so awesome. So I think we'll, we'll kick it off. Yeah, for sure. And like, as you just mentioned, Taylor, um, <clears throat> we start learning how to move as babies, but also even before that, even like in the womb, we are, we're starting to use our muscles. Our brain is starting to understand what our body is, how to interact with the world. And that kind of brings up this, this central point that we want to bring into focus for everybody that our brains evolved to move. That's at least one, if not the primary function that our brains evolved for. And um, I mean, one way you can see this is that animals, unlike plants or other, uh, you know, other uh, like fungi and, and other creatures out there, we move. That's kind of almost what defines an animal. And uh, it, it allows us to interact with our environment to better adapt and, and survive. And um, so I guess uh, we can start getting into the brain uh, like how this how this is implemented in the brain. Um, but I think that that point of we are really geared toward movement and there are a huge number of brain regions and networks involved in not only moving, but fine tuning movement, specific aspects of movement. And uh, so we're going to get into all of that. Yeah, I mean, some of the the kind of top researchers, they may be a little bit biased because they study motor learning, uh, but they they'll make the argument like Andrew was just making that like, the brain's primary kind of objective is to move through the world. 
Uh, and when you really look at the neuroscience involved in movement, it involves almost every single part of your brain uh, in, in terms of, of planning, remembering, initiating, all of these things. Uh, it's this really dynamic process that involves all of these, these moving pieces, uh, but in a really kind of organized and coordinated way. Uh, and something that I think is, is really interesting to kind of piggyback on what you just said, Andrew, is that uh, the prefrontal cortex, which makes us so uniquely human, uh, these like amazing cognitive skills that we have that are mostly geared around planning, right? The prefrontal cortex allows us to kind of think far into the future and to remember things far into the past and to flexibly put things together. Uh, it's an extension of our motor cortex. Uh, and there's a lot of like evolutionary neuroscientists that believe uh, there's something called phylogenetic refinement that we're actually not creating new brain regions. We're refining what was already there. Uh, and so it's it's uh, plausible. And I actually believe that our cognitive skills are actually built on our motor skills, that motor intelligence came first, that a lot of animals think through moving. And that we use that as the basis to develop more complex cognitive skills. So a lot of the skills that we're going to be talking about today in terms of movement can actually be applied in many cases to cognitive skills as well, like chess and things like that. Yeah. And um, just on that point about the prefrontal cortex, that's I know I feel like I've mentioned this before in these episodes and, and we've talked about this, Taylor, but how there's this... Uh, there's this abstract to concrete gradient of kind of a, a goal hierarchy in your um, prefrontal cortex. And so near the very front, uh, closest kind of to your, to your forehead, close to the front of the brain, um, the, that's where the prefrontal cortex uh, represents the most abstract goals, things that you want to do far in the future, like, you know, completing a degree or um, d having a child or something like that. But then as you move f further and further back toward the motor cortex, uh, yep. you get more and more concrete representations of uh, the kinds of kind of like the steps that you need to take along the way to get to that goal, sort of like that. And eventually that hierarchy ends in in the uh, premotor and motor cortex where the most concrete aspects of like achieving a goal are housed. And those are, of course, the movements, the actual um, muscle contractions that you have to execute to do anything in the world. And I think what's fascinating about that, too, is that tracks with development, right? Uh, young children are not able to think very abstractly. They think very concretely about what they can see, what they can touch, what they can move. And as that develops, because the prefrontal cortex develops last, their thought becomes much and more abstract. They be able, they're able to think further and further into the future. Uh, so I think that that all kind of stays on that same trajectory. And so I think what we can maybe do is break down kind of the organization of the motor system and the, the different components, because I think that's going to be really important as we start to talk about kind of the, the theories around practice and around mastering skills is really understanding how the motor system is organized in general. Yeah, so um, on that point, we just started talking about the uh, premotor and prefrontal cortex and how those are involved in these kind of conscious um, voluntary actions. Uh, but then there's other brain regions that are involved in well, there's, there's reflexes that are just completely involuntary, and that's actually mostly in, in the spinal cord, not in the, the brain itself. Um, but then we also have, you know, um, kinds of 
like a fusion of, of voluntary and, and reflexes, um, voluntary movements and reflexive movements that allow us to do things like walking, like really natural movements. Um, so to, that's just kind of a high level overview mm -hmm. that there's these different types of movement and different areas of the brain. Um, and I guess, uh, do you want to get into some of the, the neuroanatomy there? Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, the best way that I like to think about this and conceptualize this is that this is kind of a three-tiered system. Uh, there's a, a cognitive component, which is really about the planning, right? It's about what I want to reach for, what I want to move towards, what the actual task is. So if it's a complex task, you're playing basketball, or you're playing soccer, it's about what the end goal of that movement actually is. Uh, and that's all kind of this prefrontal, premotor, uh, frontal lobe type stuff is all about planning motion, uh, is about figuring out the targets of motion. But then there is a habitual component to motion, which is really about the types of movements that I know how to do, right? And that's that's controlled by a lot of the, the midbrain structures. So uh, there's a, a hand model of the brain. I just real, I just figured this out uh, recently. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. But uh, so your wrist is the brainstem, your thumb is the midbrain, and then your fingers are the cortex. Uh, and so this is kind of like a, a, a slice, right? And so a lot of the habitual stuff is kind of in this midbrain region. It's kind of more of the, and he's got an actual brain model. So <laughs> yep, exactly. So uh, there's a, a region called the basal ganglia that, uh, is responsible for selecting plans, right? So the, the prefrontal is really involved in, in coming up with and creating all kinds of plans. Uh, and then the basal ganglia picks one and puts it into motion. And it says like, this is the one we're gonna do. And it usually picks the ones that it knows how to do, right? And so that's gonna be a, a big theme in what we talk about is that there's usually a very cognitive component involved in like learning a skill and how to move and refining things. But once you know how to do that movement, your midbrain structures just take over and it's automatic. They just know what to do and they initiate those movements. But I think the most important thing, like Andrew was saying, is that the actual movement itself is initiated by the spinal cord. So the brain is not telling the body how to move. It's telling the body where to move. And the spinal cord and all of the peripheral nerves, they're the ones that know how to move. Uh, and that's where I think one of the, the main themes that we're going to get at through this episode, and it's something if any of you play sports, you probably heard this because it's, it's common, even though there's not like a neurological explanation or whatever, stop thinking about it, right? Get your head out of your body. Your body knows how to move. You need to just get that cognitive component out. And that's usually like as you learn a task, as you get better at it, thinking gets in the way because your body and these like midbrain structures that are a lot more habitual and involuntary know what to do. And there's one last component that's more about refining the movement afterwards. And so it checks for errors. And so you do a movement and you don't hit the target. You have this whole region back here called the cerebellum, which actually contains like three-fourths of the neurons in your entire brain like it's like a mini brain itself uh it tracks to see whether or not the movement was successful and then it refines it the next time that you do that and that is also involuntary so the only thing that you really have control over so to say is the very cognitive planning component and then your body really knows how to do a lot of the other stuff yeah and that that's so so basically like to kind of just reiterate what you said we've got this really cognitive kind of voluntary um, planning of what 
the body, what we want the body to do, what the brain wants the body to do. And that's mainly uh, the, in the motor cortices. Um, and then we've got the uh, kind of selection of actions, the actual initiation of those actions actually in the basal ganglia. And then the kind of refinement and smoothing out of those movements in the cerebellum. Yep. Basically what we're looking at. And then, like we said, most of the brain is is also involved in this. And we haven't even mentioned like verbal <laughs> movements, uh, like the movement of your mouth to allow you to speak. Um, we've talked about this maybe before, but there's there's specifically um, specific motor area of the, the cortex that is... Um, devoted to to speech sounds and that is the, in Broca's area that's also part of the frontal lobe but a little bit um, different area than what we're talking about so there's there's a lot of it's more what I'm trying to say is it's more complex than what we're talking about here and if you want to get deeper into the really technical stuff uh, check out Taylor's lecture on action and we'll link that yep. here and then I have a video on the cerebellum um, and yeah, so those, those would be a good place to start if you want to go deeper in how all that works. <clears throat> Definitely. Uh, cause yeah, and I mean, there's even too, there's, uh, the parietal lobe, which butts up right to the motor cortex is, is all about, uh, where your body is in space. So there's a communication between the planning and where your body is, uh, the whole idea of proprioception. There's like a map of your body and touch and all of these things in the parietal lobe. So all of this stuff, like when you really look at a map of, motor stuff in general uh, i have some pictures in that action lecture that he just talked about uh it's it's everything just all communicating with each other and that's kind of the the point we were getting at at the beginning with the whole evolution being very focused around motion is that so much of these processes that we've talked about a lot on this show are geared towards future future movement right um and you can also think i mean we've talked a lot about these like like the default mode on previous network on previous episodes and things like that, uh, that are very cognitive in general, but they're really about the future, right? They're about future movement, but in kind of an abstract way, right? It's like what I want to be, what I want to do, what I want to resolve. Uh, all of that involves some type of movement towards a goal, whether that goal is some, something concrete, whether you're playing sports or doing some type of practice or whether it's something abstract, it's all using the same kind of motor programming. Yeah. And that's interesting. You talk about, it's kind of like, uh, identifying where to go, what to do with the body. And we'll talk about in a little bit later on, we'll talk about how you can kind of leverage that the way that, that the, the, the brain actually, um, most effectively plans movements, um, to, to actually allow yourself to learn motor actions faster. Um, so, okay, so we've we've talked a little bit um, about the cortex and about these other brain regions and about how it, it, it starts out as very cognitive. And then over time, as you learn to do something, as you learn to uh, swing a golf club, I don't know how to play golf. So it, <laughs> I would be in the cognitive stage learning to, to do that poorly, <laughs> I'm sure. And then as it, time goes on and you practice that over and over again and you start to get that motion down, then that that pattern of movement gets kind of um, more hardwired into the system in these structures called central pattern generators. Yeah, yeah. And these are fascinating. Um, I think when I first learned about these, it, like it blew my mind uh, because this really solidifies the idea of thinking getting in the way. So 
when you look at like most other animals can do really complex motion without a cortex, right? The cortex is really about refinement, right? It's about learning new things, planning new things. That's kind of what you were getting at, Andrew, with it. That cognitive stage is like, I want to learn a new skill, which is swinging a golf club that requires a lot of like cortical input at the beginning. Cause you're like, you're figuring out how to plan things and how to observe and how to learn. Um, most animals, their motions are instinctual, they're habitual, right? Uh, and they are kind of hardwired into that animal's uh, spinal cord. And there are these things called central pattern generators that are sequences of movements that the spinal cord can initiate on its own. Uh, there are some studies that I talk about in, in my action le lecture uh, that are really sad. Every time I talk about like these animal studies, I'm just like, I could never do animal research. Uh, but they they severed the connection between the cortex and, and the spinal cord on a cat. So the cat couldn't get motor commands from the cortex, but they had, a, they had the cat on a treadmill and the cat was still able to do walking motion because the spinal cord had the, the kind of patterns already stored it for that type of motion when it was in that type of context. Uh, and so really what we're, we're trying to get at is that there's a lot of kind of instinctual movements that, that we kind of hardwire over time. But the really beautiful thing about being human is that we have these, these new structures that allow us to think about and refine those reflexes and those patterns and to create new sequences that then become hardwired into our spinal cord and become automatized. They become automatic. Um, and so I think what we'll, we'll kind of get into now is, is really highlighting the fact that the brain, the cortex, doesn't tell the body how to move. It tells it where to move. Yeah, that that is um, that is really interesting. Um, I guess, do we want to go into um, some of these these learning theories or talk a little bit more about the, the cortex in particular? Um, I think there was there was a couple studies that I, I wanted to, to touch on real quick. And that was uh, so to really kind of solidify this idea of, of kind of getting out of your head when you're in these movement uh, scenarios. So there was there was one that's that was done with with a monkey where the sensory input from the monkey was cut off to the brain. So the brain wasn't able to actually feel the arm. And they had the arm constricted by some type of device. And they they had taught this monkey to reach for a target, to reach for a target. And then it got some type of uh, snack or whatever. And so what they did was they said, if the brain is telling the arm how to move, then this arm is going to be constricted. It's going to think that its arm's moving because it couldn't see its arm either. It's going to think its arm's moving, but then the thing's going to let go. And it's only going to get like halfway to the target because the monkey would have thought that the arm was moving the whole time. And so that would have been evidence of the brain telling the arm how to move. But what really happened is that as soon as the pressure was released on the arm, the arm went right to the target. And so it was more of this evidence of the spinal cord and all of these, these structures down low know how to get to things. They know how to move the body. And all they're getting from the brain, all they're getting from this cognitive stuff is the target. Um, it's very similar, like if you've ever seen those like Kung Fu movies or anything, that's just like they're shooting the bow and arrow and they're like, don't think about how to shoot it. Think about where it goes. You know, and you're, you're just focusing on the target. You're focusing on the task. Uh, that's going to be really important as we get into some of these these learning theories, which I think we can kind of jump into into now, because uh, I think the overarching thing that I wanted to kind of encompass by talking about the neuroanatomy is that as we get into these learning theories, you'll start to see that like, OK, I'm using my cortex for this part. 
okay, now it's starting to become more ingrained, right? It's starting to become more hardwired and now it is hardwired. It's something that I don't have to think about. And if I do think about it, that thinking is getting in the way. Yeah. And, and just to touch on that, before we get into these learning theories, I've been reading this really fascinating book that I recommend called the brain's way of healing. Um, and, uh, I don't have it here, but, um, no. I've actually been listening to it, so I'm cheating, but it's, it's really <laughs> great. There's this chapter on, um, on movement and, um, this guy who, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which is a disease that affects the um, dopamine neurons in the um, basal ganglia, this region that's really important for um, kind of habitual movements, but also just initiating um, voluntary movements uh, kind of near the center of the brain that we were talking about earlier. And it really can affect people's ability to move, to act, to walk um, in, in a kind of a normal gait. And this guy um, kind of it's fascinating because he he sort of trained his brain to rely on the um to rely on the frontal cortex like we're talking about rather than his kind of damaged um basal ganglia and what that resulted in was he was able to move which is amazing for somebody with like severe parkinsons mm -hmm. but it was he was um moving in it, it took so much conscious effort. He had to always be focused. It was almost like he was doing Tai Chi or, or something like <laughs> the entire time that he's walking because he has to focus on every muscle contraction. Every time his foot hits the ground, he has to make sure that it's, it's in the right position and then he's lifting off with the right amount of pressure, lifting his other foot high enough so that he doesn't drag his feet on the ground. And the moment he gets distracted by conversation or something else, he kind of lapses, like his foot will drag or something like that. And it kind of shows that, yeah, the frontal cortex is, is really powerful and can help kind of um, can guide movement, but it is going to be impaired. It's going to be a lot harder to do even what seem like really automatic movements for most of us, like walking, uh, without these these kind of subcortical regions that are that are initiating those habitual movements. There's a uh, there's a neuroscientist, David Eagleman. He ended up leaving academia, started a company. He was uh, he's got great books. I highly recommend the books that he writes. But uh, he did some like PBS documentary about the brain, and there's this fascinating segment that's always just like really captured my attention. Uh, he was hanging out with this like 12 year old that was like a champion at cup stacking, like world champion at cup stacking. This kid could just like stack these cups like it was nothing. Uh, and so they did this experiment where they both put EEG caps on to, to measure kind of cortical activity that was going on. Uh, and they put one on the kid that was cup stacking for, for years and had like expert had mastered all of this stuff. And they put the other one on David Eagleman who had no idea what he was doing. Right. First time he had ever tried to cup stack. He had practiced <laughs> a little bit before they had done it. But what was really evident from that that is going to be really pertinent as we talk about these learning theories was that David Eagleman's brain was on fire. Like it was the cortical activity was just all over the place. Right. Uh, super, super active. And the cups, the, the 12 year old, the cup stacker's brain was like silent. And so it was this evidence that he had gotten to a point where it, be, it had become so automatized that his brain, his cortex was not involved almost at all, right? And so that's what, that's what the focus is going to be as we get into these learning theories. So the first one we're going to talk about is, uh, is a, a really big kind of hallmark theory. Uh, there's, there's a lot of research that's been done since then because uh, Paul Fitz is kind of the main person here and he 
published a lot of this stuff like in the 60s. Uh, but he was a fascinating character because he believed that that learning about motion couldn't just happen in the laboratory. He went out and he interviewed coaches. He interviewed professional athletes and everybody to figure out like what it is that's being done experientially, right? What's being done actually on the field and how does that translate to what we're seeing in the lab? Uh, and I mean, he, he's got a law named after him, like Fitz law. It's like the speed accuracy trade-off. Uh, so the faster you do, you're going to be with your, your motion, uh, was, was kind of, and he has this whole mathematical formula that kind of maps that out. Uh, but he got together with someone we've talked a lot about on the show, someone who's actually emeritus professor that I met with a couple of times at my university, Mike Posner. Uh, Mike Posner is a is a huge person in the attention world. So they got together and they said, OK, how can we put this whole theory together on motor learning that kind of puts these elements of attention with with learning and with uh, practice and everything? And they came up with a three stage model that tracks with everything we've been talking about. And so do you want to maybe highlight the, the three stages, Andrew? Sure. Um, so the first stage is the cognitive stage, if I'm not mistaken. And this is kind of what we've mm -hmm. been talking about, where uh, you're really using the cortex, especially these, these frontal cortical regions, but also the, the parietal cortex we we're talking about. Um, and the basic point there is like, there's a lot of thinking involved. There's a lot of, um, you know, you need a lot of instruction. You need a lot of um, like conceptualizing of, of what you're trying to do. And then you're also going to be making a lot of mistakes in that in that um, stage. Yeah. Like what I was talking about, if I was trying to swing a golf club, um, I would really just probably be terrible <laughs> at it. And that would, you know, maybe improve over time, but I'd be in that cognitive stage where I'd be really trying to focus on, on what I'm trying to do where I'm trying to get that that um, club to go, <clears throat> and <clears throat> sorry, go. Uh, you can go ahead. I got some. No, no worries, no worries. Yeah, uh, uh, and so something that's this really important. So this first stage, like you were saying, uh, the cognitive stage, you're you're not able to identify your own errors very well. Like you like you swing a club, you can tell like if the ball goes off into the, the woods or whatever. Uh, but this is where instruction and observation are absolutely key. Uh, and something that that we haven't mentioned that's really important for for movement and for learning in general in humans is the mirror neuron system. Uh, and that when we observe people doing emotion, some of the same neurons that are involved in us moving fire. And so there's a really, really important piece here that I think is is left out a lot in in practice in coaching and things like that uh, in that you at the beginning stages want to be observing perfect form. Like you want to be idolizing the experts and you want to be solidifying that early on and using that as a template for what you want to practice towards. Because that's like, like Andrew was just saying, this first step, this cognitive step is all about conceptualizing the motion. It's all about understanding how the motion actually works. Yeah, and um, just just to highlight the the mirror neuron stuff, um, I mean, just so people know, mirror neurons are are these neurons that fire um, both when you do an action and then when you observe somebody else doing that same action, and um, they are they do seem like they're important for for motor learning and everything, and um, and just as Taylor was saying, I think that's all true. Um, however, if you do 
want to see a, a kind of skeptical look at mirror neurons, I interviewed the uh, neuroscientist Gregory Hickok, who wrote a whole book called The Myth of Mirror Neurons, where they're not actually like not real, but there, there's a lot of hype around them that uh, yeah. that they, you know, they are the secret to motor learning and all that. But they're a component. They're a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Totally. And I, I completely agree with that. And I think that it's something that it allows us to internalize motion in general. And they've been they've been blown up to say that like mirror neurons are involved in everything. And um, I think that they're specifically for learning motion, not not necessarily like speech or things like that, but like grasping motions, fluid motions, like we watch people's bodies move and then we can create an internal representation of that motion. Right. Um, and they've they've done studies with like professional athletes where uh, they actually they prime their uh, the nerves in their arm to be like hyper excitable. And and then they show them videos of people doing shots uh, and their the the actual muscles will start to fire because they're so hyper like excitable. Basketball shots, not like basketball. taking shots at the bar. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some basketball shots and they compared this to controls who didn't play basketball and they didn't have the same the same activity to the same level um and so it shows that like people that get more skilled they have this attunement to what good motion looks like and they actually had stronger activity when the shot was gonna be successful and so they had this internal conception of like what that motion was supposed to look like um, and I think the, the most important here, thing here, and we're going to talk a little bit about deliberate practice here in a second, um, but the, the main thing that you need to do in these early stages is to really understand what true form looks like. Because what neuroscience is starting to show is that habits form fast and they're hard to break later. And so this is something that like it's, you kind of think that you're you're just going to like learn the basics and then move on or whatever. But spending time on the basics is really, really important. Conceptualizing what the basics are, uh, because most coaches end up spending a lot of the time breaking down bad form that was formed early on and then relearning. That's such a good point. Yeah. And, and you know, like just overall, it's it's kind of important to realize that a lot of movement is kind of driven by the brain actively generating and um, maintaining and updating these internal models of the body of of what its uh, its goals are what it's trying to do how the body's moving in space um, so there is this this process of the brain like trying to plan figure out what it's going to do before it does it and then updating that on the fly but like you're saying early on when you're first moving first learning these movements, it would be really helpful to populate, to, to create that, generate that internal model, um, like partially by seeing a, a master at work, somebody actually doing yeah. it perfectly correctly so that your brain has at least some kind of template to work off of. And I think kind of piggybacking on that too, is that this is where instruction is really, really important because we don't, because our internal model isn't, isn't to that extent yet, right? We haven't developed it to a certain extent. We don't know when we're making errors a lot of the time. And so having someone that can give us feedback that goes to the cerebellum, that tells the cerebellum, like you just made an error, 
focus on form. You just made an error, focus on form, right? Uh, that, that external communication will turn into your own internal communication as you move through the stages. But in the early stages, having some type of external feedback is really important because you don't have the sense, the proprioceptive sense, right? We talked about proprioception, like where your body is in space. It's hard to tell whether or not your arms are in the right place, whether your shoulders are in the right place, uh, because you don't know how that feels yet. Yeah, I don't know why, but it made me think of like skiing and um, mm -hmm. or, or really anything that is a, kind of a complex motor action. Yeah. And you have to remember um, how to do specific things. And I feel like I when I'm trying to like slow down while I'm skiing and I do the pizza, you know, versus the French fries, <laughs> the dips of the skis together. I always remember yeah. in my head, I feel like an instructor or or something is saying like pizza when you need to slow down and like, <laughs> you know, that error correction maybe lasts a lot or like a long yeah, time yeah. and you start internalizing that dialogue. Um, and it's, it's something that we see with children, right? Uh, it's something Vygotsky talked about uh, that children don't have internal dialogue yet. And so they have this like private speech where they'll just like talk out loud everything that they're doing. And that eventually becomes internal speech as they get older. And I think those same principles apply kind of later on in life that the external instruction that we're getting from our coach then becomes these internal mantras, so to say, that that are used as kind of refinement models. So Definitely. cognitive stage, step one. <laughs> <laughs> So awesome. And then and then we move on to what we call the associative stage. And I just wanted to mention, um, if you guys have any questions or anything in the chat, um, drop them in there. I saw Tanya said saving this video to watch for later. Wonderful topics being covered. Thank you, Tanya, whenever you do watch this video later. Um, but yeah, let us yeah, know if you guys you. have any questions about neuroscience of movement or um, motor learning, these kinds of things as we're going along. Um, really great to uh, connect with people in the chat. Um, but the second, uh, the the second stage of the Fitz and Posner three-stage process of motor learning is the associative stage, and this is where what what we were talking about earlier, where these movements start to become more habitual, or they start to become more fluid. Maybe maybe habitual is not the right word, but it becomes a little bit more automatic. You know, as I'm swinging that golf club, I'm not just smashing it into the grass every single time. I'm actually starting to hit that ball and, and starting to do the, the right thing with less thinking involved. Totally. And I think uh, I think habitual maybe not might not be a terrible word because the way that I personally see it is that uh, it's not a stage model. It's not like you're habitual or you're not. It's a process, right? And so... I think that that some of the motion is becoming habitual. Like you're you're nailing down your shoulder position, right? You're nailing down your elbow position and that stuff is consistent, right? You're consistently doing that. Like let's say you're doing a layup. You're consistently taking two steps and then jumping, right? But then you have these other portions that need some cognitive input still. That's still like, okay, my form in the upper half of my body still isn't great. And so that's where this like attention uh, idea is like and observing and and getting instruction getting feedback but this is the point in this associative stage where you start to be able to uh feel your own errors that you've gotten all of this feedback through the cognitive stage but you're at the point where you've been corrected so many times that you know what good form feels like 
And so, you know, when you went to go do that layup, that it just didn't feel right. And that's why the ball went the wrong way. And that feeling, that proprioceptive feeling of where your body was in space at, acts as a, a signal to your cerebellum to then refine things and do it different the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is where it's, it starts to, you start to, I guess you're starting to lay down those, those central, uh, or are starting to, to program those central pattern generators to do that movement automatically. But you're now, you're now conscious of the errors that you're, you're realizing you're becoming aware of those errors as they occur, rather than having somebody else have to tell you um, that you've made an error. Um, so this, this seems like a, it's like the, the in-between stage between um, when we're really thinking about it and then when it really becomes something that is truly hardwired into our system or hardwired is not the right word, but, but more hardwired than when we're just, you know, like, like David Eagleman stacking those cups and he has no idea, you know, he's trying to figure out where to put the next one. What's the pattern? What does he have to do? And then the other, the kid who, the 12 year old, who's just doing it automatically, he's got like no cortical activity. We're kind of in like a, an in-between stage there where it's, it's, it's almost like you can think of it that these motions are getting sort of deeper and deeper programmed into Mm -hmm. the brain. Um, kind of literally almost. And this is, this is where, so I mentioned we were going to talk about deliberative practice. Uh, so that's a, it's a big field in itself, uh, understanding how practice should be done, right. To actually get to mastering a skill. And that's where this comes into play. Like this is where the repetitive doing things over and over and over again is important. But something that, uh, Anders Ericsson, who was the, the guy that kind of came up with deliberative practice, uh, one of his quotes was taken out of context by Malcolm Gladwell uh, in his book Outliers. And it created all of this hype around the 10,000 hour rule that if you just do something for 10,000 hours, you become a master. And that is crap. Because if you do the same thing crappy for 10,000 hours, (laughs) you're not going to get better. Uh, The whole point of deliberative practice was intentional practice was was keeping so i mentioned the importance of experts early on in the cognitive stage but you don't lose that through this it still becomes your hallmark you study the experts you study good form and and what you eventually want to do you look at uh, lionel messi right and you're just like i want to be uh that kind of a soccer player i want my body to move like that and so you watch tapes you watch yourself on tape and you see how your body looks compared to how an expert's body looks. And what that creates is targets for improvement, right? Because deliberative practice is not just about doing things. It's about doing things with the intention of getting better. And that takes a lot of humility, right? It, it, it's this understanding that I'm not an expert, and that this is a growth process through the entire thing that I'm I'm observing the experts. I want to be an expert eventually. And it's understanding that even if I'm really good at kicking the, the soccer ball into the net, that doesn't mean that I don't have things that I need to be working on and putting my attention on and continuously over and over and over again. I mean, uh, practicing an instrument, right? It's if you just practice for 10,000 hours, it's not going to do anything. But if you notice like, oh, I need to fix my 
my form on my hand a little bit to to move it in, in the right way and i uh, every day pick one new thing to get a little bit better at that really is the the heart and soul of deliberative practice and you know it makes me think about like the history of sports because as you're talking about that we we kind of need these targets to aim for i mean if you look at like i'm i'm kind of a football fan so if you you look back <laughs> at uh at quarterbacks like they've literally they've actually gotten better and better they're they're beating each other's yeah. records they're becoming truly better like tom brady is better than like joe montana if these names mean anything <laughs> to people but but the point is that they had they had those experts to look up to they had their yep. you know their coaches and the people that allowed them to see kind of the higher level and before there was you know before the Tom Brady was around, there was somebody else. And that guy didn't get quite as good as Tom Brady, but Tom Brady only got as good as he did because he had that that other guy to look up to. And so there's kind of this, like, it's not just that you can get better, but you can kind of almost like think of it that this is how sports, this is how things yep. advance on a large scale too. So it, it, it's really interesting that to think about how that um, that plays out on, on kind of a, a wider social level. I mean, I, I was just thinking, as you said that of like Sean White. Yeah. Doing this yeah. like Me too. crazy, like the, triple the backflip, whatever. 60. Right. And now it's just like the thing that like every snowboarder does in the half pipe. Like, well, and the other uh, guy, the last year or two years ago, um, the, the Japanese guy, I can't remember his name. He, he, beat that he did another rotation or something yeah. crazy like that it's just and they're getting like 30 feet out of the half pipe like uh i think that's that's a really cool observation because yeah it's uh and the thing about tom brady too that's that's really important to highlight is that he watches his own video consistently he watches tons and tons of tape and something we're going to talk about in a minute as we talk about the, the optimal theory as we get past the kind of Fitz and Posner one um, is that your attention in the moment needs to be more external. And so if you spend a lot of time focusing on on form, like watching videos of yourself, watching videos of expert, that becomes an internal model that allows your body to make corrections on its own. So you don't need as much cognitive input. Uh, so the more yeah. time you kind of spend thinking about and internalizing a model of what good form looks like, the less cognitive ability you need to actually refine that, if that makes yeah, sense. And the, yeah, that's that's really great. It just also made me think I, there's these findings in um, kind of visualization, which can be sort of like a woo-woo area. That's um, But when it comes to motor learning, if you... Um, there, there are some studies that show that people who like really vividly visualize uh, a, a movement, a specific movement they're trying to do, like if it's in basketball, you know, trying to improve your layup or your three point or something like that. Um, it, it just visualizing that and focusing on it, like imagining yourself in that situation, doing it mm -hmm. perfectly and like generating that internal model in the absence of actually moving can improve your performance the next time you do that almost as much as as actual practice and I, i've heard i need to look at this but i've heard studies that say as much as as real practice so that that's i mean it just made me think i used to do rock climbing uh a lot i used to boulder and i uh, i had this uh this guy that ran the gym that would uh come in and hang out with me every once in a while and i was trying to do this like dino where you jump pretty high to catch this other rock 
Uh, and I had been sitting there trying to do this for like half an hour and just couldn't get it, couldn't get it. And he came over and he said, sit right there for a minute and a half and just picture yourself doing that. And I got up first try, boom, and I hit it. Wow. And and yeah, it's uh, it's it's really powerful to to spend that time creating the plan, right? Creating the target and then letting your body actually initiate the motion. Uh, and so the last stage that that we'll kind of get into. So uh, overall point here, 10,000 hours, crap. Uh, <laughs> you need to have intentional, deliberate practice. Uh, you need to be humble about your abilities and, and realize that this is a process and that you're always growing, that there's always room for improvement, right? Uh, and the last stage is what they called automatization. Um, and there's, I, I don't really like how some people talk about this uh, because some people are like, only the experts get to automatization or whatever. But um, I think that there's a lot of motion that becomes automatized. Uh, we might not get to like an expert level of motion, but like walking becomes automatized, reaching becomes automatized. Things that we do a lot become things that we don't have to think about. I mean, the entire act of picking up a coffee cup and bringing it to your mouth and taking a sip without burning yourself is an incredibly complex motion that has become automatized. You don't have to think about it. Right. And so yeah, except uh, like me, sometimes I definitely, <laughs> I still burn myself. myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're still learning. We're still in the associative <laughs> phase. <laughs> Uh, but the whole point of the automatization phase is that this is where you really don't see many errors, right? So this is where you've gotten so good at it that your body just knows what to do. Uh, and there, then it's like coming back to the cup stacker analogy. Uh, he didn't have to think about any of those motions. And if he did think about them, then he was initiating refinement, right? In that moment, he was trying to fix something instead of just acting. Right. That's what I kind of view the cortex as is that we have these habitual actions that we can do, these automatic actions that we can do. But the whole point of the cortex is to change them. Right. And so if you already know how to do something and then all of a sudden you get up in your head and you start thinking about it too much, that's getting in the way of your body actually doing it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I guess it's like, you know, you're kind of always learning, like even the experts are, are going to have to continue to refine that, as you just said. Mm. And it's like, I think one thing that we haven't really touched on is just how um, how there can be so many kind of like environmental irregularities when you're doing like a given movement. So if you're playing in a football game or a basketball game and, um, you know, you might be an amazing three point shooter when there's nobody out there. But when you have to take into account more movement and move your body in a slightly different way, you know, you might not make that three point shot because you're still you're still learning. You're still um, having to kind of do that error correction and that like error analysis, um, which is a cognitive uh, function. And, and kind of building on that, I think you, you're touching on something that's really, really important for this automatization stage, right? Uh, when the motion becomes automatized, when it becomes something that you don't have to think about cognitively, it opens up your cognitive abilities to think about other things. And this is what really is the hallmark of an expert, is that an expert basketball player, an expert soccer player, they're not thinking about moving, they're thinking about the field. Right. They're thinking about all of the different pass options, all of the different combinations. Right. They're they're engaging cognitively, but not about their body. 
they're engaging cognitively about the task, about the game. And I think that's really what the important part of this automation phase is, is that because your body is so good at doing it, you've now freed up all of these cognitive resources. Uh, and there's this, this great paper of John Krakauer that's called, uh, is the dumb jock really a nerd? Uh, <laughs> and it's great because it highlights that like this is a form of intelligence. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and just um, one more example for people uh, before we move on to the the next theory, um, unless you have anything else you want to say, Taylor, but uh, typing, typing is a good example of, of what Taylor was just talking about. As a kid, you learn to type and you learn to, you know, like, okay, put your hands here, put your index, left index on the F and your right index on the J. I had to look at my keyboard to remember which ones, but, and then you learn to like how to move your thumb is the space bar and blah, blah, blah. And then over time, slowly, gradually that becomes more and more automatic to the point where you don't have to think about, you know, pecking the keys, tapping, tapping them. You're like flowing through. And, and now you can devote those cognitive resources to actually thinking creatively about what you're writing or, you know, yeah. analytically about what you're writing. You can actually free up those cognitive resources to, um, to then use that skill in a uh, more complex way, I guess. And I think the last thing that I'll say, and then we'll, we'll jump into optimal learning with this last 10 minutes we have, but I, uh, the most important thing here, I like my typing form is so irregular because I didn't spend time at the beginning doing that. And like I can type fast, but it's weird. And so that's something that we really want to highlight is that if you get to the automatization stage with bad form, it's really hard to correct. And that's why it was really important early on to really spend the time studying the experts to think about form because if you get to this point and you have really bad form it's really hard to go back so uh we'll jump into optimal learning theory uh really cool it's uh gabby wolf and rebecca luthwaite put this together uh and they've done a lot of work with coaches and and with uh sports teams and things to really understand like what is optimizing performance uh, and so optimal is actually an acronym. It stands for optimizing performance through intrinsic motivation and attention learning. Uh, and so we'll kind of touch on, on these components. We have 10 minutes to kind of get through this, but uh, it really kind of piggybacks on a lot of the things we've talked about in previous episodes. So, uh, so yeah, cool. So uh, I'll, I, can, I think I can just kind of jump in yeah. because I think the first one is really relevant to the work that I do in that I, uh, Autonomy and intrinsic motivation are the keys to getting buy-in, right? Uh, so if you have, if you're a coach for a team and you really want your your players to love what they're doing and to like be in the game and to to want to practice, you need to give them a sense of autonomy, a sense of control, and give them a sense of intrinsic motivation. I study the self. We do things that are self-relevant. If we can't find a reason for doing it, like we feel like we don't have any control over the moment, if we feel like like it's not meaningful to me, we don't put the effort in. And so it's really easy to do this. And it just comes from giving players choice of, of saying like, do you guys want to practice this or do you want to practice this? How long do you guys want to do free throws? How long do you guys want to do this? Uh, there's actually a, uh, it's seen in professional basketball uh, that, the players will come up with a play and the coaches will come up with a play and then they'll come together and they'll consult. But it gives the players some control and some autonomy. 
And so this is seen kind of all the way up to the expert hierarchy that like one of the most important things to really get you motivated to want to get better at that skill is to have some kind of locus of control, to have some autonomy in the situation. Yeah, and I'll just say that that is also like a true in in studies of uh, motivation. In um, there's something called uh, self determination theory, and uh, yeah. I think Edward DC and I can't remember the other guy Ryan something. But they, you know, one of the the, the main uh, components, the main driving factors of of what keeps people motivated to do something is whether they have control over it, whether they have that sense yeah. of autonomy. So this is maybe even broader than the motor learning domain, but. Um, like Taylor said, it's, it's very um, relevant for the stuff that we're talking about here. And it's simple changes. All you have to do is, is change your language as a coach a little bit and start giving the players some choice in what they're doing. Instead of giving commands, uh, give them a little bit of autonomy on the field and it'll it'd be a huge payoff. Uh, and then the next one, do you want to kind of take this next one, the enhanced expectancies? Um, you, you go ahead on that one. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's similar to stuff that we've talked about, uh, but it's it's just the idea that confidence requires small wins, right? You want to build someone's confidence because that's what keeps them motivated. That's what keeps them in the game, um, and that's done through really small achievable goals. Uh, Andrew and I, the very first kind of thing that we did like this, it's not officially part of the podcast because it was before we started it, but uh, the neuroscience of, of achieving goals. Was, was all about setting these, these really small kind of incremental things that every little win gets you more and more invested. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, that those little wins, achieving those goals um, is associated with dopamine release, which is mm-hmm. also an important, um, uh, important chemical in, in motivation generally, in keeping you um, wanting to, to continue to strive for more, to do more and more. Yep. And dopamine is really important for the function of these, especially the basal ganglia, these like habitual circuits we're talking about, and just movement generally, like I was talking about earlier with Parkinson's, um, when these dopamine neurons are damaged, it's really hard to um, initiate movements, uh, habitual, like automatic movements. So uh, these these small wins are going to be really important for kind of like keeping you, your brain motivated at that, that level with the increased dopamine. And so this last one with this last five minutes that we have uh, was honestly the most surprising to me. And they have some some really fascinating research that, that kind of shows this, uh, that better performance is the result of externalizing your attention. And so a lot of people think that like we need to focus on our body. We need to focus on form. We need to focus internally, right? Uh, Andrew and I have one of our, our last episode was all about interoception, about kind of feeling your body, being inside your body. Uh, but with motor learning, it's actually more beneficial to have an external attention, to be focused on the task itself. Uh, and that that kind of plays on a lot of the things that we've said, because the body knows how to move and the body knows how to correct. Yeah. So an example of that would be like, instead of uh, thinking about where how exactly your arm is moving as you're shooting 
a basketball shot, it may be more beneficial to think about where do you want that ball to go, but not just where do you want it to go? How do you want it to move? You want it to have a backspin. So how, how is that going to translate to the actual movement of your arm? But having that external focus kind of, it almost like just brings all the movements together. It's like your brain's like, okay, to be able to do that, we're going to have to do this, 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 and this, rather than like getting stuck on step one. Oh, I have to contract, you know, this muscle and then this. And um, yeah, that was fascinating and mind blowing to me too. <laughs> and this is something that uh, I think kind of piggybacks on a lot of what we've said, because um, I personally, from what I've seen, I don't think that it's like purely like you should always be external attention. But what, what really comes into play here is that if you've done the work observationally right if you've observed other people if you've observed experts if you've watched tape of yourself doing things if you have a strong internal model of what that motion should look like then you don't focus on your body because right. your body your brain already has that model it already knows what that motion is supposed to be like through instruction from coaches from all of these things and so what your actual attention needs to be on is on the task itself uh and they've they've shown this with just like uh putting like little stickers on on people and this is even in like gymnastics uh where it's all about form it was like the most surprising to me because they were they had coaches that were like yeah this is this is interesting for like maybe sports where you're like shooting a ball or something like that. But, but what about gymnastics or what about martial arts that, that are all about form? Um, and they showed, they started to put these like stickers on people and they said, instead of focusing in your body, focus on the sticker. And all of a sudden they were better with their form. They were doing better things. And so uh, I think it, it really highlights how cognition can get in the way of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And um, another example of that is a lot of people uh, like physical therapists and others will tell you that to get upright posture, pretend like someone's got a string tied to your head and is pulling up on it. And again, that's that external focus. And if you do that, you kind of notice, okay, if that were true, then my body would be like, you know, my spine would be aligned in that rather than like trying to straighten it. And you can't really see your spine. You don't know how, how mm -hmm. bent it is. So having that that idea of okay so just this imaginary string pulling your head up um <clears throat> th that can be super useful for improving your posture and throughout this episode i've been thinking about how i've been automatizing for posture <laughs> my whole life me too <laughs> i think you talked about that uh, in your in your lecture um, and yeah. then one other thing I was just going to say, I think, you know, this may be partly why people can improve really quickly at like flow sports once they've got the basics down. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but um, by that, I mean like sports, um, like extreme sports and uh, like skiing and mountain biking and um, and uh, swimming and things like that, where you're 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 trying to go to a specific place and you'd like trying to ski down the mountain you're not focusing on how your legs are moving. You're focusing on where the moguls are and how you're going to get between those. And so it's like, I think, you know, having that kind of extreme that like danger element maybe pushes our brain to try to, to, to take that external focus and, and do the motion more effectively. Something that came to mind with me, and I mean, this is, I think, speculation at this point, but uh, when you're talking about posture and the whole like string on your head, I was thinking about how when you do turn your attention internally, oftentimes you're focusing on like one muscle or one muscle group. 
when these motions are incredibly complex mm. they're a combination of all of the like dozen muscles in your back combining with the muscles in your shoulder and your side and all of that um and so maybe having this external model allows for kind of a more holistic organization of all of these muscles towards a common goal rather than using your cognition to focus just on your shoulder or just on your back or whatever it may be that then throws all of this other stuff out of balance that's such a great point yeah that was that's that's exactly what I was thinking. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, it looks like we're coming up at time. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for, for checking it out, for watching this episode of the social brain. Um, we'll be back probably in a couple weeks doing this again. And um, let us know in the comments, if you have any uh, specific topics you want us to cover or anything like that. And um, as uh, we've mentioned in a few episodes, or a few last few episodes, we're going to be um, creating a Patreon uh, for this show. So if you get anything out of this, you find it useful, we'll let you know when that's up and uh, you can contribute. We'll have, we'll have some different options there, but also Taylor has some, some ways you can help support his channel too. Yeah. I mean, we, we absolutely love the idea of, of free education. Um, I'm, I'm an educator myself. I teach college courses. That's the whole point of my channel was to get all of that stuff out from behind a paywall. Right. Uh, so we want this stuff to be open to consumers, but uh, we also want to be able to keep doing this. And so uh, being able to support us really kind of helps keep us motivated, keeps us kind of coming here every two weeks. Uh, my wife has this great gift shop. Uh, we have links down below. She's got these really cool like mugs and shirts and stuff that are kind of psychology and therapy related and things like that. So uh, definitely check that out. And also, Andrew mentioned earlier that he cheats and listens to books. Uh, <laughs> I do too. I have like four months of listening time on my Audible account. Uh, we have links below for free trials for Audible. And uh, even if you cancel, uh, we still get a, a chunk of that. So, And you get a free book. Uh, I have book recommendations on a ton of my, my options. So uh, that's a, that's another way that you can support us, but we just, we really appreciate you guys coming and watching every couple of weeks. Uh, we absolutely love doing this or I'm speaking for myself. I think he does too, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys. And we will see you for the next one.